We're studying the book of Daniel, and we have come to chapter 6. We have gone through 5, and 6 is a break in the book. 1 through 6 are uh, really a presentation of Daniel's time in first going to Babylon as a young student under the uh, rulership and uh, uh, leadership, as it were, of the king Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see him become a leader and truly lead in that country all the way up until the year of uh, 539. We want to go over that just quickly so everyone understands where we are. Tonight we are going to, as it were, finish the what I call Daniel 1, or the first six chapters, which describe Daniel's ministry, and he uh, occupies several positions. We'll touch on that in 6. But the other thing we will understand is that after that, in chapter 7 through the rest, 7 through 12, God is going to, through Daniel and the things he shows him, reveal to us the rest of history. There's no other book in the Old Testament like Daniel. The closest thing to it is, of course, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And we are going to take 7 through 12, the rest of it, and we are going to be dealing with what has happened more recently than the time of the first chapters, actually in uh, some in the life of this country, some in the other, the things that God has revealed. And we will go all the way through to 12, and that will take us through the rest of human history on this earth. It is an important passage because it does lay things out for us. It is particularly important for us because we are, it would seem, in the late afternoon of human history. And so I hope you will be here, we'll have, I think, uh, as we study this. Your time is in it. You, you who are here breathing and alive tonight, your time is in it. Most of us are in that condition. Maybe we won't be tomorrow, well, we'll be with him, we'll know more then. But we will be looking at chapters 7 through 12, and uh, we are going to be going to heaven. It is one of the best presentations of what is happening in the presence of God, because remember, the uh, realm of heaven is forever olam olam, and this universe that we are in, and the other ones, parts of it that we can see and speculate on, some, some we can see it clearly, they are for a time, but eventually they will be gone and we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. But from now on, starting next week, I'd ask you to study chapter 7. It is an exciting chapter and uh, we will get to it and uh, we will be going through the rest of the book. If you have questions, write them down and we will talk about that. Now tonight, we are going to be finishing up, as I said, the narrative of Daniel's ministry in a true sense. Uh, we remember that Daniel, in chapter 1, comes to Babylon. He doesn't come there for vacation. He's not going to the Four Seasons or the Hyatt or wherever. He comes there to, as it were, uh, be trained. 
he is taken by Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar as we say it, the uh, ruler of Babylon. He is the uh, uh, really the second great Babylonian empire and the last. There will be no other great Babylonian empire. The Bible makes that very clear. But under Nebuchadnezzar, it, it, it actually there will be four really good kings, but we'll only deal with Nebuchadnezzar because that's the one the Bible primarily deals with uh, in detail. Anyway, Daniel we find in chapter 1, as you remember, Cain, he was taken captive as it were, taken from Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar, actually Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, actually took control of it somewhere around 609. In 606 though, he really brought the hammer down, and in 606, he not only, uh, as it were, fertilized and strengthened his rulership, but he also brought back something that he would bring back from other nations, and that was the best students among the royal class. And he did that with a number of the nations that they uh, took captive of, and he did it for the nation of Israel. And Daniel comes back, you'll remember, with young men. And uh, they come back to go to Nebuchadnezzar University. And uh, I don't know how long it, actually we believe it was three year, a three-year school. And then you would go on learning, but you would serve after that. Daniel comes back, and he has, of course, three friends with him. And they have the foursome, the fearsome foursome. And uh, anybody tell me who the three were? Okay, got, we got the Babylonian names. Anybody give us the Hebrew names? Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so, but they had a, they are a marvelous young group of men, and they, the three of them, there's some of the things that Daniel is not part of, particularly chapter three, and uh, so, and we've looked at that. Chapter one, of course, we have them coming back. Chapter two. God begins to, Daniel is now graduated, and he begins to see the rest of history in symbolic form. What he sees there is a huge statue. And you remember the statue, the head of gold, and all those things. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3 is a, a, another kind of problem that the three I mentioned have. They are... Uh, as it were, told that they had to fit in with all of the other young men who were leaders, political leaders, in worshiping the uh, gods of the Babylonians, and particularly included in that was, of course, Hedonimus. And you'll remember in chapter 3, you have the uh, those that wouldn't do it got a rather... Uh, strenuous uh, discipline. What happened to them? Furnace. Yeah, they were thrown in a fiery furnace. And of course these three go in and they uh, are saved by God and it's a miraculous thing and it was part of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. It brought him finally to really trust in the Lord. Chapter 4 is also part of that. Chapter 4 we have Nebuchadnezzar uh, as it were, uh, having a vision. Now it starts off with him being more uh, 
uh, interested in who he is and what he's done than he should have been. He's out there, he's on the roof. Remember his palace had these roof gardens and we can still see some of the remains of those today. But he was up there one evening and he's looking and he's, he said basically, my how wonderful I am and how great the Babylon I have built is. And we do, it may do that at our house, but then we look over and we see somebody else's house is bigger. But in Babylon there was no bigger house. God finally got a little tired of that. Uh, and uh, he deals with that, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, as it were, turned into an animal. He doesn't look like an animal, but he's going to feed like an animal. He's going to be put in a royal forest and taken care of. And who takes care of him? Daniel. Daniel. Amazing. It is after that that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just know about God. He comes to know God, and you will see... Nebuchadnezzar in heaven if you are in Jesus Christ. That is something that is a marvelous passage. Now we uh, see that in 4. and 5 we come to the end of Babylon. We won't go through all of the leaders of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. The one before him, there was one before him in what we call the New Babylonian Empire. His name was Nebo Pelasser. And he was uh, probably, we're pretty sure, he was the father of his Nebnus. When we get to the end, we have two rulers. And one of them is named Nabonidus. And he was officially the follower or the ruler in the line of Nebuchadnezzar. But he has a uh, steps, actually it's an uncle that is in the line of Nebuchadnezzar, who winds up being the one who rules in Babylon. Now, Babylon was a capital city. It was truly a city-state, and everything circled. And this uh, young man was more arrogant than anyone had been so far, and so he was in trouble from the moment he started. But his, anybody know his name? Belshazzar. Belshazzar or Belshazzar, that's right. And Nabonidus was officially the king, and of course he's over in the uh, Arabian Desert. He, he didn't want to put up with politics. And, you know, as I watch television and see all the things happening, I, 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 I think I'd like to have gone with, them, with Nabonidus. He was in a, an oasis over in the Arabian Desert. Back at Babylon, his... Uh, nephew, as it were, is ruling, and this is the Belshazzar. And of course, Belshazzar did not believe in God. He believed in the gods of Babylon. He brought them all back, and he had a big banquet, you'll remember, and they were worshiping the gods of Babylon. And uh, that's all happening, and uh, they bring Daniel in finally to, uh, because they have a problem. While they're worshiping, uh, they're, they're non-television went on. They didn't have anything like that, but all of a sudden on the walls over from the, if you look at the remains, the remains of this particular part of the palace are still there. He had a skybox. If any of you used to have gone to a cowboy game, you know, they have the skybox. We used to get to sit in the skybox occasionally when somebody invited us. And it was great. You had all you wanted to eat and you're in a box. And we only got to go one or two times. 
But Nebuchadnezzar had one, that, or he had one, and all the ones after him had a skybox in their great banquet room. And Belshazzar is in that skybox because he's the ruler of Babylon. Across from him, there was a huge wall, and down on the floor were all of the banquet tables and everything. And this wall was decorated, it had uh, torches in it and everything. But on this particular night, remember that all of a sudden, writing appeared on the wall. That had not happened before, and they didn't say NBC, CBS, or ABC. It was just there, direct from God. And of course, they, they didn't know what to do with it, and the queen mother, who was actually the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, was still living. She says, I know someone who can interpret this, Daniel. Now, Daniel had been uh, very well placed in the kingdom, but at this time, he been sort of forgotten, but they bring Daniel in, and Nebuch uh, the uh, Belshazzar tells him, we're going to do all these wonderful things for you just interpret this. Daniel, by the way, didn't put up with much foolishness. He said, you keep your treasures, let them be with you, but I'll tell you. He says, you've been weighed, you've been counted, and you, the day, your day is done. And he uses 666, the 666, which you see also in the Revelation, which means human, this human effort has come to an end if you've come to an end. And anyway, he is there, and that is the end. And that night, and this is a super important issue, that night, Babylon, the city, went down. And it went down because a man named Cyrus who was a Persian, Medo-Persian actually, came. Actually, he did not lead it. He had one of his generals leading that part, taking the city itself, Gorbis. And they took the city, they went under the wall, this part of the Tigris River went, or the Euphrates River went right under Babylon. They walked in and they took it without firing a shot. And that was the end of Belshazzar and all of that. And so that ended, and that was in 539. That ended Babylon. Is that Cyrus or Darius? You said Cyrus. Cyrus was the one over it. Now, okay. we haven't gotten to Darius yet. Okay. Cyrus was over his His general's name was Gorbas, who would later be called Darius II. But he's Gorbas, he's his general. And so when they take it, they... Uh, this general who took Babylon under Cyrus, believe me, Cyrus was the ruler. And when he took it, this general took Babylon in 539, uh, he, Cyrus, the overall emperor of all of Persia, Medo-Persian Empire, he was an interesting guy, by the way, I was reading on him this week, and he uh, actually... Uh, had to defeat several enemies before he took over all of the Persian Empire. And one of them was Avestes, who was his uh, father-in-law. And he went to war with his father-in-law. I don't know how things went at home after that, but <laughs> you can imagine. I wouldn't want to do that with my sweet. Anyway, he, but he, he takes this general and makes him Darius, and that's the one we're going to read about tonight. And so that happened in 539, and now... The world in that particular part of it is run primarily by the Persians, the Medo-Persians. And that brings us to this particular 
session we're going to look at tonight. And it is the last one that describes in order, uh, as it were, uh, not only geographically, but uh, uh, as far as the time periods, this is the last chapter, 1 through 6, to give us Daniel in, in, in the order of happening. From here on, we're going to be seeing things that are not necessarily in that order, but they are extremely important. They're going to be prophetic pictures. Some of them will look at you are in some of those pictures. We'll be sure and tell you. Uh, but there are others that happened before that, but have not happened yet. And we'll see those in chapter 7 through 12. And so that brings us to chapter 6. And... Uh, we do know that uh, most of, or many of the uh, Jewish people who were taken to Babylon, not all of them, many of them were able to go back to Judah. They went home. There were others that did not, and we know this because a large Jewish community continued to be in Babylon up until the time of our Lord Jesus. Now, they were not a nation. They were just a city that was under whatever nation was running the, the, the show at that time. But what we have now is uh, that we have Babylon goes under in 539. The Persians take over. And a lot of the Jews go back to Judah. But Daniel does not go back. We do not know why he did not go back. Probably because he was so important. And we begin to see this in chapter 6. Now, I want to go into chapter 6 uh, down a bit where we have the uh, what I think is the key in the passage. And it's the story that all of us heard in Sunday school when we were little boys and girls, Daniel and Delion's den. And uh, we're going to look at that and then go back and look at chapter 6. But I do want us to know that Daniel stayed, and he was a man of great emphasis, or great ability, and great authority. He was first a satrap. A satrap, there were 120 satraps. These are governors that governed the various parts of what was left of the Babylonian Empire. But we find out in verse 2 of chapter 6, let's just look at 1 and 2. And it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. Now, Darius is under Cyrus, but Cyrus had a lot of other things to do. There are people that think he was, of the same, he was at the same level as Cyrus the emperor. I do not hold that. I don't, history will not bear that out. But he was important, and he's ruling Babylon. And he appoints 120 satraps. These are sort of like governors of states, the closest thing you can come to it. Daniel may have started there, but in two we read, and over them were three commissioners. Now, these are assisas. Assisas were, uh, they were basically over a large section of the entire country. And they had the country divided into three areas. And so Daniel is one of these commissioners, and we'll just call him that, one of the three. And that was a, a great honor. Uh, and it says, it were over them three commissioners for whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might be accountable to them 
and that the king might suffer, not suffer loss. Uh, they were not terribly honest in, in those days, uh, sort of like today. Uh, the high officials and they, the Babylonians really uh, didn't put up with much until they, their leadership started going downhill, sort of like ours is. And neither did the, uh, as it were, Persians. And the Persians actually for a long time had a very strict government and then they started falling apart. But they didn't put up with a lot of tomfoolery at this point. What we do know is though that Daniel was not popular among the other leaders. Now you might think, why would Daniel not be popular? Well, we'll talk about that. But what I'd like us to do is to, for a few moments, think of us being back there. Now, Babylon was, as I said, on a branch of the Euphrates River. It ran under the city, and it was a place that actually they did not really destroy. Uh, when it was taken by the Persians, they just fixed it up and, and they ran it. But I want to take you to a morning that's covered in chapter 6. Actually, it's early morning. Now, I do not know if you've spent much time in that part of the world. My wife and I have. We've been going to the Middle East for, lo, these many years. We're supposed to go again this year, but uh, things are not going well where we wanted to go, so we, we didn't go. But we've been over there, and we've been over there at... Uh, most at the different times of the year. But one thing I can say about Babylon and that area of the Euphrates and Tigris River, which are two rivers that run parallel, is that the weather over there doesn't change much. At night it's moist and hot, and in the daytime it's just plain hot. And so we come there at the time, we do not know exactly the time, but we come to the uh, city of Babylon and it's early morning. And uh, the glow uh, in the east is uh, the sun is coming up and it's announcing dawn. And the sun would rise and by 9 or 10 in the morning it would bake the countryside. And so you wanted to have a nice cool place to be. At any rate, it was early in the morning. Now, there were people out there doing things. The flag raisers had to come out and put up the flag in the various parts of the city. And, of course, it was no longer a Babylonian flag. It was a Persian flag. And then there were others who were working to fix breakfast for the royalty in the palace and, and others who were sweeping the streets and doing whatever they were. But the royal people, they were all asleep. They didn't get up early. They liked parties. We have this, if you would like to read some of those, I can recommend them. We have it in their, their uh, hieroglyphics as we think of it. They aren't, they're, they're cube form. But they had large parties and they slept late unless they were in a war or something. And that was true in this day, except on this early morning as we're they're looking at ancient Babylon. It had eight gates, and we're looking at the most important one, the fourth gate. As we watch, we see somebody come out, and he's not just anybody. 
this guy obviously has some clout about him. He's not riding a horse or he's not in a, wag a wagon. They use wagons. But he has a retina of soldiers with him. He has other servants with him. And he's one guy and obviously he runs a show. He has a couple of dozen people with him. And he's hot-footing it out the gate, walking. Now, if we knew his age, it would help, and we estimate that he was somewhere towards 70 years of age. But that didn't seem to bother him. He is in a hurry this morning. And as he hurries, he comes out, he goes over the moat, he counts, he turns right, and we're on the north side of the palace, and he goes out to a group of mounds. And these mounds are probably about 30 feet in diameter, and they're probably 50 or so of these mounds. And as we get close, we begin to think they have a television going down in one of the mounds because you hear sounds. But all of a sudden, we know these sounds are not made by TV. These are animal sounds. And as they get closer, these are lion sounds. And they are roaring. Now, he's going toward one of these mounds. And it's really a manhole with a place that's dug out below it. And he's going toward this, and we wonder what in the world is he doing on this morning? Because these lions that are in there, they are not circus lions, and they're not zoo lions. These are very slim, hungry, people-eating lions. And one of the things the people who are running the show in Babylon, before that, now in Persia, and also in Assyria, one of the things they loved, we got it back there? One of the things that they that they loved to do was to feed enemies and even people that weren't enemies to the lions. It was a great sport for the Assyrians and Babylonians and the Persians. But this man is upset, and you can see it. And as he comes, they clear the top off, it has a circular top, and they drag it off, and he starts yelling down into this hole. And we wonder what he's saying. Now, we do not speak Persian, so but we do understand the word Daniel, and we hear Daniel, Daniel. And for some reason, Daniel is in that hole with the lions. And so that's what we're going to look at. To see the background, we go back to six. But I want us to see this because we see that God's people, no matter when they do very well and are in a great position, don't always find themselves with everything going smoothly. And things are not going well for Daniel. At least the king is afraid they're not going well. So let's turn to chapter 6, verse 1. And we read the first part. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these commissioners might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began to distinguish himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. What spirit is that? 
Spirit. Yeah, it's God's Spirit. And that was extraordinary. An extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now remember, this king, uh, this, this Darius, is not over everything, but he's over this thing. And he was going to see if he could put Daniel over it, and he'll go do something else. We don't know what else, but anyway, that's what he'd like to do. But there's a problem when you're that important. And the problem is when you rise above your friends who don't like you very much anyway, you wind up being one that is not terribly popular among the folks. Now, the first thing we see about Daniel, though, is he's very popular with the king or with Darius. And uh, he keeps rising and going up. And he's popular because he is one who is extraordinary. He does a wonderful job. Now, there are two things you're going to see about Daniel. First, we're going to see that he works hard. And if you study his life, he's a hard worker. He labors. And he always does it to serve those he is working for. And that is one of the things that really makes him uh, one that many appreciate. The second thing you find out about him, though, is that he's primarily laboring to please the Lord God. And that's a huge issue. That is who he is wanting to, to uh, bless, and uh, he is wanting to uh, show his worship. <laughs> In fact, some of you may remember Larry Burkett. He was a business guy who began to write how we who are in business or just in any ordinary job are to take and use our jobs to glorify God. He, he used to like to say, for too many Christians, work is a necessary evil, while for others it is an area of worship. Right. For Daniel, it was an area of worship. And you see this all the way through, and so he's going to do this. But they had other people there that were not as excited about that as Daniel was. And that uh, problem stemmed from the fact that he not only worked hard, he worshipped hard, and he worshipped one God. If you study the Babylonian history of this period, in fact, first, first uh, period of Babylonian history and the second, you'll find that they one thing they didn't like was gods. They had more gods than people. And so if you worshiped their gods, they were all happy with you. But if you tried to be someone who said one god is above all others, you, you were in bad shape. Particularly when that uh, person that you uh, are working for says, that's fine, you're doing a great job, we, you can keep worshiping God. And so that is what we have with Daniel. And Daniel, Daniel began to distinguish himself, but he let everyone know that it was God he worshiped. Now, if we go back and read the best of Daniel, we see that. And uh, so they're, they're doing but the commissioners and the satraps, uh, they, they didn't care for this. Now, we're in a time politically where we have never seen anything like this in our nation of the chicanery, of the lies, of the, the uh, attempts to uh, misuse and uh, cause people to stumble and fall and actually be thrown into prison for various things. Well, that was very common in Babylon. 
And so Daniel is facing that, and uh, when he began to distinguish himself, we find then the commissioners and satraps begin trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence, any evidence of corruption. Now, we, you can't turn on the television now that you don't look at evidence of corruption. This is this and this is this. Well, Daniel, they, they were accusing him because they couldn't find anything about him. And it says there's a reason for that. In the middle of verse 4, what was the reason? He was faithful. He was faithful to who? God. To God. I want to say to you that it's to all of us that we are in a time when faithfulness is not real popular. But what we are to do is to be faithful beyond anyone else and every other problem that others bring by their unfaithfulness, we tend to help put right by being faithful to God. It's not going to be a very popular thing. And we are served in a pastorate for over 50 years. And, uh, you know, you see men who serve and women who serve in the church, some were in the staff, some not, and that have been faithful all the way. But as we have gone through the years, we're seeing now, now more unfaithfulness among those who are supposed to be the family of God. Well, in Babylon, it, the politics was just what you could get away with. But Daniel was not that way. And so these men said, we must, then these men said, verse 5, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Well, every time I read that, I wonder if anybody says that about me. <laughs> Look in the mirror and say, I wonder if anybody says that about me or you. I hope so, because that is what we want to have. What we do see, and Phyllis Ann and I have ministered in various places in the world, that in some places people are very faithful to God, but they get into great problems for it. And yet they remain faithful. Now Daniel is about to have this problem. These commissioners then, who were under him by the way, came by agreement to the king. Now they're going to try to, to get poor uh, Darius. Uh, we need to know something about Darius. He's a, he's a soldier, basically. He was with General. And he actually won the Battle of Babylon. And as I said, he's probably somewhere close to 70 at this point. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a soldier. He's, he's not a politician. And boy, there's a big difference. And uh, so he, he, he doesn't know what's, you know, he doesn't know that he's being used. He says, uh, we will... Uh, we're going to use him, and uh, they come and they speak to him as follows. Verse 6, King Darius, live forever. Well, that's the first line. Nobody's going to do that. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statue and enforce an injunction. The statue here is not a stature. It's a stature, not a statue. It's, it's a law. And enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any other god or man beside you, O king, 
for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. The one they worshipped most at this point, of course, was the king himself. And that was, we saw that with Nebuchadnezzar until finally he found out when he, God turned him into a cow or whatever was grazing out there that he shouldn't do that. But that they, they, were, they saw themselves as being number one. So you don't ask anybody else for anything. When we look at this, we realize that uh, we have a society that is making men, human beings, men and women, gods. And they are to be worshipped as gods. And that wasn't true of every society. We could go into where they, they, not every society says our king is deity. But there were many and they were becoming more and more. And that's sort of where we're headed today. And it, it is an interesting thing to watch where the, the people that are leading want to have one world government. Uh, we can mention some of them. They really see themselves as being the ones who are to guide and be, as it were, supernatural leaders. Well, they were solidly with this, Darius, you're now king, and if anybody comes to ask for anything but you, we get them. Now, O king, establish the injunction, verse 8, and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, Darius has uh, signed it, and all of the three top leaders, they know. And Daniel knows. And so what would you do at this point? Well, we could have secret worship services over here. But I want to say to you, that's not what we do. And that's why this is important as a passage. We stand up and we worship him no matter what. Now, he's, we've already seen this in the book of Daniel. Uh, my favorite passage in one, in one sense is chapter 3. What happened in chapter 3? Fire yeah, and uh, three guys put in the furnace. And what did he say to him? What did he say? He said, uh, "We, we Some are." Whether God saves us or not. He said, God, "He said, I love the way they put this." And he, it said, he, "They say God will save us, but even if not, we will not worship this hunk of junk." They didn't say that, but that's what they meant. <laughs> And so that is where we are, and more and more people are facing that. Canada, for example, is having a huge problem among the evangelical Christians. But we are to stand up, and that's David Daniel is going to do that. And so when you have in verse 10, when David knew, or David Daniel knew that the document was signed. Oh, David would have gotten his sword out and cleaned house, but anyway. <laughs> now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered the house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had done previously. 
we see him do this and we'd say first why did he get on the roof his roof garden and, and go point toward Jerusalem and pray what made him do that custom huh custom to face Jerusalem Jerusalem why What's in the temple? God. God. That's right. God dwells in God. It's the presence of God. Now, what did he pray about? We'll find out in chapter 9. What was Daniel asking? He had one thing he's asking for God to do. What was going to become of his people? That's right. Send all my people back. Lord, let them go back. And that's what he's praying for. We won't deal with that here, but we will when we get to, to uh, chapter 9. That One of the great prayers in the Bible is Daniel 9, chapter, 9th chapter, verses 1 through 18. It is an incredible prayer, and that's what he's praying for. Okay, so Daniel is praying for this, and uh, he's praying toward Jerusalem. And uh, as he prays, uh, he is asking God and that, that this would happen. Now, when this happened, the uh, slimy conspirators, they, they, they begin to work. It says that, and these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petitions and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is the one of the exiles from Judah, they don't say he's one of the three leaders. You know, this is anti-Semitism at its best. Placed, Daniel pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Now, I'd love to have been there at this point and watched Darius because he knows he's in trouble. And he knows he's not a politician, he's a general and that's, he, he's got a big problem. But he knows he's going to have to go through with this and uh, as soon as the king heard this statement he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Uh, I really, really love this guy, and I don't know what happened to him afterward. I hope he became a believer. I don't know that he did, but he is, he is concerned for Daniel. He loved Daniel, and he was going to put make him over everything. Yeah, he was going to put him. Yeah, we saw that earlier. Daniel is going to be over all things. Okay, so we have this situation now. One of the things we see in this is that when we serve God faithfully, sometimes it's costly. And it sure was going to be costly to Daniel, but Daniel's going to trust the Lord anyway. 
And this discipline that he is going to carry out to continue praying is, uh, it looks like, going to be the end. Actually, uh, I'd really like to have seen Darius that night because apparently they gave the order about sundown. And night nighttime was party time, but nobody went on parties that night. In fact, we read this, uh, that uh, then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve, will he will himself deliver you. Now, I love that statement. He's seen enough to know that God is going to deliver Daniel. And that's something we may be doing more of, asking God for deliverance. But if you don't, God, it's all right. We trust you. And this is what Daniel is doing. Now, the next thing we see is they made sure that Daniel would be there. The stones were brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king seal, king sealed it with his own signet. And they used signet, they used sort of a clay, and it would, they would seal around the edge, and then they would stamp it with his ring. And the, the signet rings of his nobles, all of them got into it. So nothing would change in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night. Usually they had parties every night. Boy, party time was a big thing. But on this occasion, no parties. What are they going to do? Well, he, what he's going to do, it says, he went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought to, before him. And sleep fled from him. It really, I love the Aramaic here. This one statement, it says, and sleep got up and left the room. <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful. It's it makes me, I, I do fine with Hebrew, but not Aramaic, but I, that one, it was worth working on. <laughs> sleep got up and left the room, and there he was. And that brings us back to where we started. Then the king arose at dawn, the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said, Daniel, servant of the living God. I just believe this guy came to faith. It is great. As your God whom you constantly serve, don't miss verse 20. Is that our life? Is that your life? God we constantly serve. You know, I, every time I read this passage or study it, I think about people that have touched my life because of their continual service to God. Some of them have been in military, and when I was in the military, some were in engineering, some of various things God stuck me, he put me in through the years that he's allowed me to live. But one of the ones I always think of is a guy that... Uh, we got to know in Florida. He started coming to the church I was pastoring in Clearwater. And he was an amazing guy. He, you, you read his record, he just, he was a, he was a newsman. As a young man, he, he was in World War II, but most of the theaters, he was there as the correspondent. 
when he got through, he came back and got into baseball, not playing, but as a forecaster and announcer. We finally met him in Clearwater. He shows up one morning, and we, somebody said, Ernie's here. I said, Ernie who? Ernie Harwell. Well, if you know anything about baseball, you know who Ernie Harwell is. Hall of Famer. Just an incredible guy. And he, he and Lulu, his wife, I love them both, they started coming to Clearwater Community Church, and we became dear friends. And I, He just touched and changed my life. And he was a guy who continually served the Lord. Now, you don't get much more famous. Baseball's about to start again. We're about to get rid of football, and some of the teams are thankful it's over. <laughs> but baseball was coming, and every time I, I think of Ernie Harwell, Phil and I used to go to Detroit occasionally. He was the announcer for the Detroit Tigers and see him, and uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. And Ernie is a guy that he just, you know, he just trusted God and he was always there, always saying a word for the Lord. When he passed away recently, they did something in Detroit. And if you've been to Detroit's new stadium, it's about 10 years old now, but they've got a statue out front as you go into the main gates. It's not of a baseball player, it's Ernie Harwell. A man who continually serves God. And that's what we want to be. That's, you know, as long as we are here, we want to be like Daniel so that no matter how bad the situation gets or how difficult it seems that we keep serving God and people will say both our friends and those who aren't so friendly, are you still following the God you have continually served? And that's what you get out of Daniel. And he surely did that. Now, he, of course, is going to be gotten out. He's, Daniel slept well, of course, for <laughs> our poor friend. <laughs> friend he, is, he, he didn't, Darius didn't sleep well that night, but he, he got better as time went on. And we are going to, as we see Daniel, God speaks to him with all of the things that he brings to him. We see that God gives himself and his plan to those who continually serve him. And that's the kind of people we want to be. Now, I'm going to stop there. We're going to, next week I'd like to, as I said, have you read through seven. Read at least what Daniel said to the king. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're verse twenty-one. Oh, twenty-one. Yeah, I thought I. Yeah. Then Daniel spoke to the king. Oh, king, live forever. Well, he could say that now for Daniel. <laughs> My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no wrong, no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury, whatever, was found on him, not a tooth mark, because he had trusted in his God. And then, these other guys are not going to fare well. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> then the king gave orders and brought these men, those men who had maliciously accused him, Daniel, 
And they cast him, them, and their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the people, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may you, may your peace around abound. abound. I guess get that out of there. May your peace abound. I make, a de I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues, performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. One of the interesting parts of this is we later will read some things that Cyrus said. In fact, they are contained in other literature in the Bible. But somebody got to Cyrus because he understood, he says great things about the Lord. And I have to think maybe it was Darius. This you know, to me kind of, would be evident Dan, that uh, Darius was a believer. Yeah, I agree. And when he says, yeah. oh, king, live forever, yeah. he doesn't mean live forever on earth. No, that's what I'm saying. He got it, he got it right. He's the, you know, it's kind of interesting that Darius, or, uh, Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego went through the, almost the exact same thing. And what happened to their accusers? They were thrown into the furnace. You would think that people would learn their lesson. <laughs> 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 Got to get that one gone. Evidently not. So what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he, when he saw the three guys in, in there with Jesus walking around inside the he becomes a believer, and now Darius becomes a believer one, after Daniel. One is like the Son of God. Yeah, he said there's one in there with him like the Son of God. That's yeah, a great passage. Well, that it really closes, as it were, the narrative of David's or of Daniel's life. I'm working on David for something, excuse me for that. But Daniel's life. Next week we're going to pick up what Daniel begins to see in uh, other situations in heaven and we'll get to heaven in Daniel 7 and uh, I think it'll be something that will bless our hearts and also guide our walking with him. Any other questions you have to